Uh, let's pray together once more. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a rock-solid foundation on which we stand and build our lives and build our hope. So we look to you this morning that you would give us instruction and help and hope and faith to believe all that is written in your word. And uh, we pray for our brother and sister, the Hickey family, Logan and his family, and ask that you would provide for their needs. We ask that you would um, send them to Scotland to take your gospel and to partner with the brothers and sisters there who are seeking to plant and strengthen churches among the poorest of the poor. And we pray that you would honor their hearts and uh, provide them with all that they stand in need of so that they, in fact, are able to travel later this year and make their home among, among them. And so thank you for their hearts. Send them, we pray, with your spirit and with all that they need. And give your spirit to us now as we come to your word, um, looking to you um, for comfort and guidance and instruction uh, that only you can provide. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the more I thought about it this week, um, the more I thought how relevant Exodus 32 really is to all that we're dealing with. I thought about changing the sermon later in the week, but I didn't want to give you the trial of a Saturday night special those are not necessarily always the best kind of sermons, so I had prepared pretty thoroughly on Exodus 32, and uh, this, this passage is all about idolatry, and if there's one thing that, that pandemics like this are intended to expose, it's idolatry. It's substitute trust that we put, our, that we, that we put in the place of God, it's things that we look to, and God has a way of sending messages to his creation to remind us that he is the only one who can truly be trusted. That there is no financial security ultimately, there is no freedom in, from, from health concerns, there is ultimately, uh, last time I checked statistically, 100 out of 100 all die. So, um, so he, is our, he is our hope and he's our refuge. And, and so this, this passage teaches us a lot about what happens when we look to other things and what, what happens when we ourselves, as God's people, can fall into forms of idolatry and look to other things to give us what only God can give us. So I hope this will encourage us this morning to make the Lord our refuge and our strong tower and remind us that he alone is the one to be hoped in. So the sermon title this morning is The Crime of the Counterfeit Calf God. Sounds like an episode of NCIS or something, but um, it is actually taking place here in Exodus 32, and we're going to look at this passage under six points this morning. We're going to try to cover the whole chapter relatively quickly. I don't promise that we'll get out exactly at noon, but we'll, we will do our best to get through the text quickly. First point here this morning, we, I want us to see the reality, the reality of idolatry. Now, I, I don't have to, I don't have to point you to any specific passage, the, the whole chapter is, is evidence that, that God's people are committing gross idolatry here at the foot of the mountain. Remember what's going on. Moses, since Exodus 24, is on the mountain. He's, he's receiving instruction from God. He doesn't know what's going on at the base of the mountain, and he's been gone for some time now, and the people have decided to take it upon themselves to, they don't know what's happened to Moses, and so they decide to throw an idolatrous party at the base of the mountain. And so this is a reality. This is what happens to them in the midst of Moses' time with God on the mountain. So let's talk about the reality of idolatry. First of all, I want to define it for us. What, what is idolatry? What does it mean? Tony Morita, a pastor in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina, uh, defines idolatry in the following way. He says, idolatry is putting something or someone in the place of God. 
Idols are counterfeit gods. Anything you seek to give what only Christ can give you, joy, security, peace, meaning, significance, identity, and salvation becomes an idol, end quote. Tim Keller defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you, give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Ray Ortland says an idol is anything you think you need outside of the promises of God. Again, Tony Morita says, Many people do not believe idolatry is a problem because they only associate idolatry with shrines, temples, and carved images. But heart idolatry exists everywhere. Common idols include money, sex, a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances. Behold our time period now. Beauty, brains, and success and ambition. We could add health to that list. It's, it's, it's basically anything that we look to that's designed to be given to us by God that we are looking to something else to give us what only God can give. Tim Keller, again, gives a number of examples of idolatry. I'm not going to read all of them to you, but he, he substitutes uh, potential idols in this way. So fill in, the, fill in the state, fill in the blank here when it says life only has meaning or I only have worth if blank. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if blank. So here's some examples. Maybe it's power idolatry. In that sense, it would be I have, I, life only has meaning if I have power and influence over other people. Or approval idolatry. Life only has meaning if I'm loved and respected by so-and-so. Or comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning if I have this kind of pleasurable experience in a particular quality of life. Or control idolatry. I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of blank. Maybe it's helping idolatry. I'm only, I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. Or maybe it's dependence idolatry. I'm only, I only have worth if someone's there to protect me and keep me safe. Or maybe it's independence idolatry. I'm, I only have worth if I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone. Maybe it's work. I'm highly productive and getting a lot done, therefore I have worth. Or maybe it's achievement. I'm only recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work, therefore I have work, worth. Or materialism. I have a certain level of wealth and financial freedom and very nice possessions, therefore my life has meaning. Or religion. Well, I'm adhering to all my moral codes and accomplishments and in, in all my religious activities. Or maybe it's individual, being an individual person. This one person is in my life and happy to be there, or happy to be with me, and therefore I derive worth and significance from that. There's, there's just innumerable ways in which idolatry can work its way out in our lives. We could have family or relationships or suffering or ideologies or image, and all of those can be forms of idolatry. In fact, John Calvin famously said that our heart is an idol factory. That, that, that is, it continually and relentlessly produces idols. G.K. Beale, a New Testament theologian, says that through modern, though modern idolatry in the West may look different and not be expressed in the same way it's expressed here in Exodus 32, we continue to set up and adore what he says are symbols in which we believe God appeared before our bodily eyes. We are overwhelmed with admiration for them as if something of divinity was there. 
think of such idolatrous symbols of our culture going on now. I mean, how many people are really, 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 really bothered that the NCAA tournament is gone? I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't be sad about that. I'm pretty sad about that. I'm not a huge basketball fan, but I appreciate March Madness. But people are going to be like, it's March Sadness. We need to, we need to, uh, we're going to be quarantined, and now we have no hope of basketball either, and the NBA is gone, and what's going to happen to, and, and, and I enjoy concerts, and they're all getting canceled, and all that kind of stuff, so we think, oh, oh, where's my life going? But th- again, that's because we're looking to certain things. Now, it's okay to be bothered by that stuff, be disappointed, but if we're crushed, and we're discouraged, and we're, and you can't be happy without that kind of stuff, that, that's not good. Beale goes on and says, idolatry symbols can be found in pop stars and pets, athletes and accomplishments, gadgets and gurus, celebrities and popular politicians. He says, when the enjoyment of the gifts of God imperceptibly replaces the worship of the giver of these gifts, God loses his proper place and our hearts become a dwelling place for idols that do not satisfy. C.S. Lewis rightly diagnoses the tragedy of our idolatry when he writes the following. He says, the woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all the power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. It's a glorious thing, Lewis says, to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman, glorious so long as other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her. But clear the decks and so arrange your life, it is sometimes feasible, that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her. And what happens? Of course, this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or a impartial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or impartial good for which the sacrifice is made. Apparently the world is made that way. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. So in other words, C.S. Lewis famously said, the man or woman who seeks after heaven gets earth thrown in. But if we seek after earth, we get neither. In other words, you can only truly enjoy the gifts of God as you are rightly related to and prizing the giver over the gifts. And if we begin prizing the gifts over the giver, we can't enjoy the gifts or the giver because our idolatry robs us of our inability to even absorb and enjoy the good gift. That's Lewis's point. And that's what we see happening here in Exodus 32. Point number two, that's the reality of idolatry. Point number two, the reprehensibility of idolatry. I want you just to see how terrible this is of what's happening among God's people as Moses and God are on the top of the mountain together. I want you to see two things that that really put this in its ugly, ugly, ugly presentation that it should be. First of all, notice that the people of Israel are doing what God told them not to do. They're doing what God told them not to do. Look at Exodus 32, verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony. Those are the Ten Commandments, right? Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. 
But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now, what are they doing here? They are doing exactly what God told them not to do. In making that, this golden calf, they're breaking the first commandment. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And in Exodus chapter 20, verses, uh, verse, verse 1, or sorry, Exodus 31, verse 1, we, we read, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Wait, you're not supposed to make gods. They also violated the second commandment. In verse 4, we read that Aaron fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. They were clearly instructed not to make a graven image of God. Also, they broke the third commandment because they said again in Exodus 32, verse 4, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So not only are they taking God's name in vain, they're also bearing false witness, breaking the ninth commandment, because they declared, they declared this statue formed of molten metal to be their god. And then finally, they broke the seventh commandment. In verse 6, we read that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, that may sound innocent, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 and 8 say the following. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. So it goes from the episode of the golden calf to cautioning against sexual immorality. The phrase rose up to play, brothers and sisters, was not about throwing a frisbee in the yard. It was about immorality and sensuality. See Genesis 26, 8. 39.14, etc., that in, indicate sometimes play includes sexual immorality. And that's exactly what seems to be going on. So th they're doing what God told them not to do, at least breaking five of the very commandments that Moses is holding in his hands as he comes down the mountain. That's how reprehensible what's going on is. Secondly, not only is it reprehensible for doing what God told them not to do, but they are doing what they told God they wouldn't do. Okay, so they're not only doing what God told them not to do, but they're doing what they told God they wouldn't do either. The Israelites should have been enjoying the fruits of their relationship with God and this covenant that he'd established with them. Remember, we saw in Exodus 24 how the covenant was established. There was this great ceremony. It was like a wedding. And Moses and the elders came up the mountain, and now Moses disappears on the mountain, receives all the laws about the tabernacle. But just weeks have passed. The ink is still wet on the covenant papers, so to speak. The blood had hardly dried when God's people are violating their covenant obligations. In chapter 19 and again in chapter 24 of Exodus, God's people enthusiastically said they were going to keep all the terms of God's covenant. Remember what they said in Exodus 24 verse 3? All the words that you've spoken, we will do. And again, in Exodus 24, verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. But they're not doing it. They're not doing what they said they would do. But it's even worse than we think, friends. Twice in the book of Exodus, we have the record of God's people gathering in some formal way for eating and drinking. Remember Exodus 24, 11, where after the elders were allowed to go up partway, they... they into, on the mountain, that they beheld God and they ate and drank together? 
Remember, that's the conclusion of the covenant renewal ceremony. We have the book that was given, the blood, the bread of the covenant. They made a kind of sacramental meal together, but what's going on here in this second occasion of a meal? It's an abomination. They're twisting and perverting the sacramental meal that they enjoyed with God on the mountain, and they're having it with their counterfeit calf god. Their sin was even worse than we imagine. How quickly and badly they have fallen from the heights of this covenantal arrangement and the vows to the depths, of, to, to the depths down here of this golden calf. Brothers and sisters, the only way I can put it in, in, starker ter- in, in the starkest terms possible is it's like having a beautiful wedding ceremony and committing adultery on your honeymoon. That's what they're doing. They're committing adultery on their honeymoon. It's reprehensible. It's terrible. That's point number two. It's reprehensible not only because they did what God told them not to do, but they did what they told God they wouldn't do. They've broken their covenant vows. Number three, the reason for idolatry. Why? Why'd they do this? We've looked at the reality of it and the reprehensibility of it, but why? What's the reason? I want to give you three quickly. The first reason is given in verse 1. Look at Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Up to this point, it's quite possible that all of Moses' trips up and down the mountain were day trips. But the reason that they're committing idolatry now is because of impatience. Impatience. Maybe Moses spent an occasional night up there previously. They may have saw him come and go back and forth, but now he's been up there for a while and they don't know how long he's going to be gone. And so Moses has been up on the mountain a long time, 40 days and 40 nights, which is much longer than normal, and the people are getting tired of waiting and they begin to doubt if Moses is ever going to come back. So rather than continuing to trust God, they let their impatience and their own sense of when things should happen take over and take priority over continuing to trust and wait on God. Brothers and sisters, we're made of the same stuff. We're made of the same stuff. When things aren't happening on our timetable according to what we desire, are we not tempted to take things into our own hands? Are we not tempted to try to do God's work for him, help him out a little bit? Phil Riken says, the irony, of course, was that at that very moment, everything was going according to God's plan. Moses was getting the instructions Israel needed to build the tabernacle, and God would descend in glory and dwell with his people, and then when the time was right, he would lead them out of the wilderness and into the promised land. But God had not abandoned them at all. He was busy preparing for their salvation. But rather than waiting on God the Israelites decided to take matters into their own hands. And this is how sin happens. We fall into sin when we fail to trust God, that God knows what he's doing and try to work things out on our own. Instead of waiting for him to do something according to his own time frame, we try to speed things up. By setting the agenda, what we are really trying to do is wrest control from God when we ought to do instead is wait for him to work. Wait for him to work. And yet, because they were impatient, they fell into idolatry. That's the first reason that they ended up in idolatry was impatience. And we, can, we need to be guarding, guarding against that as well, which is why one of the fruit of the Spirit, the reason that the Spirit was given to us, is to be patient. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. 
I mean, how, how often in the New Testament do we read the command to be patient, to persevere in patience, to wait for the Lord, be strong, the psalmist says. Take courage, wait for the Lord. So we need to be instructed in that way as well. Secondly, forgetfulness. Forgetfulness is another reason. Psalm 106, commenting on Exodus 32, we read the following in verses 19 through 22. They made a calf in Horeb, which is another word for Sinai, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. <laughs> That's the psalmist doing a little jab on them. Really? You're going to exchange the glory of God for an ox? Well, Romans 1 says that we do it now. We do it now. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So what's the reason that the psalmist gives for why they committed idolatry? They forgot. They forgot. Sin enables us to forget, forget the goodness of God. And that's the story of Israel. Do you remember what happened at the Red Sea? They panicked. Why they panicked? They forgot. Can you recall the plagues of Egypt? Why did they make this golden calf? Because they forgot. We forget. We forget these stories. We forget our own stories. We forget the times when God brought us out of the pit. We forget the goodness of God. So that's why we're called again and again and again to remember Remember, remember. And part of gathering for worship every week is to help us remember. Help us to remember who God is, remember what story we're a part of, remember what he's doing. So that's the second reason they committed idolatry. They forgot. They were impatient. They forgot. Thirdly, they compromised. Acts chapter 7, verses 38 through 41 where we read, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. See, you have to try to understand what was the attraction of a golden calf. They could see it. They knew it was valuable. After all, it was made of their own gold. They could touch it. They could physically bow down to it. They could sacrifice to it. It was their skill that crafted it. But here's what was most important. In having the golden calf, brothers and sisters, they were finally like everyone else. They were finally like everyone else. See, Israel is co-opting the golden calf because it was a popular image for gods in the surrounding culture. The people are happy to worship God, but they want to worship God like the other people do. They want to worship God on their own terms. They're happy to worship God, but they want to combine this with worldliness and indulgence. They let the nations set the agenda. They want a God who's visible, a God who's manageable, and even if they are not replacing God, they are at least reducing him. See, the bull or the calf that they made is a common symbol of strength and fertility in surrounding nations, and it still is. We talk about a bull market to describe a rising market, which is not what's happening now. <laughs> but English national pride is sometimes personified as John Bull, Israel is co-opting the images of the surrounding culture to reimagine God. It's the same thing that happens today. Some people want the benefits of being part of the church, 
but they don't want to relate to God on his terms. Or they want the blessings of God along with the pleasures of indulgence. See, I want to worship God and I want to do what I want according to my own sin. They want forgiveness from God, but they don't want to obey God's will. Some people want to pick and choose which bits of the Bible they accept. And naturally, we all remold God in our image or our culture's image rather than remembering that we're made in his image. And as Christians, we worry sometimes that if we don't compromise, then the culture won't respect us. But brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded the world will not respect us anymore if we change with every cultural fashion. And if we become no different to the surrounding culture, then we have nothing distinctive or worthwhile to say or offer the culture. If we simply echo the world, then we offer no alternative. The world has plenty of temples to its own idols. There's no call or excuse for making God's church into another one. It's common in our culture for people to think that they can decide what God is like. In this way, we create our own version of God. We want to think of God as loving, but he's, nah, his holiness is not so important. Or we want to think of God as merciful, but he's not a judge. He's not ju- he doesn't judge. We create a God of our own imagining. It's not so far removed from worshiping an idol that we've made. We may not have a metal idol, but we have a mental idol. We have to beware of any sentence, either on our lips or on another person's lips, that begins like this. I like to think of God as... Or, I don't think that God would be like... Or, my God isn't... Those sorts of things are the very definitions of idolatry. Because we're defining God on our terms, not defining him on his. And you don't want that done to you. You don't want to be defined by somebody else. Well, he's really like this. Well, she's really like this. Oh, if you really knew her, you'd know that she's like this. Or if you really knew him, he's like that. You get offended by that. Why would God be any different? You know why you get offended? Because God gets offended, and you're made in his image. He doesn't like to be lied about. And he doesn't like to be cast in the image that we want to make him. But why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because that God is manageable. That God is easy to control. That God sits there as a big gold statue and doesn't move. R.C. Sproul says, The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent, but at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them, call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. So those are the main reasons they fell into idolatry. Impatience, forgetfulness, and compromise. Brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of the same kinds of things. Let us not grow impatient with God's timing. Let us not grow forgetful, but let's do all we can to remind ourselves daily through God's word and prayer and encouragement of one another. And let's be mindful that God's not to be trifled with by way of compromise, that he sets the terms and the agendas. Number four, the response to idolatry. We're going to go through these last ones more quickly. Number four, the response to idolatry. Notice what happens. So we're going to see, first of all, what Aaron says. Moses is now at the base of the mountain. And then we're going to see what Aaron says and then what actually happened. So look at verse 30, chapter 32, verse 21, where we'll pick up the story. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You, you know the people that they are set on evil. Is that a true statement? Yeah. 
Aaron's like, listen, Moses, they've given you a hard time this whole, you know that, you know how hard they are. It's like you coming home um, and, uh, and expecting, you know, your kids to be, you know, you hired a babysitter and you're expecting your kids to be in bed maybe and have had their teeth brushed and all that stuff. And you come in and the house is a wreck and the babysitter goes, oh, you know how they are. Oh, you know, they're just, they're crazy. You know, you left them with me, but you, you're with them every day. That's kind of what Aaron's doing here. I know that would never happen with any of your all's kids, ever. No. But let's keep reading, see what he says. Verse 23, for they said to me, they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So far, true statements. Verse 24, so I said to them, let any who has gold take it off. Okay, true statement. Keep reading, verse 24. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and, and, and out came this calf. Out came this calf. Magic. It's magic. Now, is that, is that really what happened there? Well, most of it, but let's, let's turn back to the beginning of the chapter. Look at Exodus 32 again, and look at verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold, this is exactly what he told Moses, that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. That's all true reporting. Verse 3, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Wait, so that's not the report that Moses receives. He says to Moses, I just threw all this stuff in the fire and a calf popped out. But what really happened was he fashioned it after melting down the gold that the people gave him. And brothers and sisters, we're just the same. This is our common response when our idolatry gets confronted, either by God or by a faithful brother or sister. We go, yeah, but... We blame shift. We blame shift. We make excuses. I was under a lot of pressure. I was under a lot of pressure. Um, these people are really, really hard to deal with. Um, I, 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 I really intended things to go differently, but they didn't. Or in this case, we just, like Aaron, sometimes just out and out lie and say, look, that's not what happened. I didn't, I didn't fashion the idol. I just threw it into the fire, and that's what happened. So, brothers and sisters, we need to be aware that when our idolatry gets confronted, that our default ever since the Garden of Eden has been to blame other people, blame circumstances. I mean, we could, we could go, I mean, isn't, isn't our culture kind of looking for someone to blame right now? It's China's fault. Or... It's like, like as though Jesus never said that disease will characterize this age until he comes back, you know? Um, or we're looking for somebody to get us off the hook or somebody to fix it. Look, and some of that is good motivation. We need to fix it and we need to work hard. But responding by immediately looking for someone to blame or immediately making excuses is never a good default. Number five, the results of idolatry. What happens as a result of this? Four things quickly. Number one, personal corruption. Look at chapter 32, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. 
Notice he doesn't say, first of all, they've sinned against me, although that's true, but they've corrupted themselves. We learn something here. Idolatry corrupts us. Idolatry corrupts us. The reality is that we become like what we worship. In fact, I want you to notice something here. This is, this is, this is incredibly enlightening to me in my study this week, so hang with me if you're, if you're struggling now. Moses describes Israel's behavior this way. They're stiff-necked. They're stiff-necked. Now, if you study the scriptures on that phrase, that phrase is usually referring to a child who won't listen to parent parental direction. They stiffen up, they won't look at you. Or it's referring to an animal that when you muzzle it or put a yoke on it, it won't easily follow you. You'll jerk at it, and you'll try to pull and direct it, and it just pulls the other way. Israel's like this. They're behaving like wild calves. Ask the Gundersons and the girls and the boys uh, how it is to handle little baby calves. Do they always want to follow you? No, they jerk against you, and they... Pastor Thad has his ways, I'm sure, of getting them to, to cooperate. But, but what he's saying is they're becoming like this. They're stiff-necked. They're not wanting to follow God. They look at God and they say, yeah, we want to follow him, but we kind of don't. We kind of want to do our own thing. And so when he set, describes them as stiff-necked, or as he says in verses 8 and 9, they've turned aside from the way. They've been let loose. They need to be gathered together as he says in chapter 32, verse 25 and 26, he's using the language of they're behaving like animals, wild animals, calves that are untrained. They're supposed to be led where they're supposed to go, like he says in th chapter, th chapter 32, verse 30, 34. So in this very chapter, the behavior of Israel is painted like this. They're stiff-necked. When they're let loose, they turn aside. They don't want to follow you. They need to be gathered together and be led where they're supposed to go. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like a calf. It sounds like an animal. G.K. Beale says, The first generation Israelites did not literally become petrified gold calves, but they are depicted as acting like out-of-control and headstrong calves. What they had revered, they had come to resemble, and that resemblance was destroying them. We become like what we worship. Idols remake us in their image. So personal, that's, that's the definition of corruption, is we become like what we worship. And if the, or we're not worshiping the true and living God, we're becoming like something else. Second result is temporary pleasure followed by bitterness. Temporary pleasure followed by bitterness. Were they having a good time at the beginning of the chapter? Oh, yeah. Look at 5 and 6 of chapter 32. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Who doesn't want that? We want a big party. Now, notice what? And they rose up early the next day. They could not wait to get after this. This was fun. You didn't have to tell anybody. None of the kids were sleeping in. They were getting up, none of the adults either. And they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Very religious thing to do, religiously respectable. And they, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They were having a good time. But what happened afterward? Look at verse 20. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it in, on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. How would you like 
a bottle of melted calf. Gold, gold, nasty, dirty water, and they had to drink it down. Now, why, why did Moses make them do that? Well, we're not told in the text. But we can assume it was a form of them, them both, both as a reflection of God's judgment on them, but also as a way of tasting something of the bitterness of their sin and how awful it was. Ray Ortland says, The riches and fullness of life come from what is spiritual, not earthly. Money can buy a house, but it can't make a home. Money, money can put food on the table, but it can't put laughter and joy around the table. Money can fly you to Paris, but it can't kindle romance there. What money can do is make you an attractive target for thieves and lawsuits. There's no security in money. There's no life for us in any tangible thing. What makes for life comes not from this world, but from the grace of God. Therefore, a heart at one with God is the secret to life. To have God is to have all things. And so what we see here is they have that temporary pleasure. Temporary. Sin is always a blast. Sin is all, idolatry is a blast. You will love it in the short term. You will love it. It will give you your gratification. It will give you your satisfaction. It will give you what your heart wants in the moment. But it will always be bitter in the end. It will always be bitter. And that's what we see here. Their party turned to bitterness. That was one of the results. Personal corruption, temporary pleasure followed by bitterness. Two more quickly. Worse than that is God's wrath. Look at chapter 32, verses 9 and 10, where we read God's response. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. See, that's the, that's the greatest danger of idolatry. That's the greatest re- result of it, is that it brings the wrath of God. Read Romans 1. The wrath of God is coming and revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They exchange the glory of God for images resembling things of the earth. They exchange the worship of the true God for images and worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And that reason the wrath of God is coming. It's, it's Romans 1. And it's happening here in Exodus 32 as well. So, Far worse than any personal corruption or temporary pleasure followed by bitterness is God's wrath. And of course, God's wrath brings with it death. We read at the end of this chapter that death for some was the result of this sin. Look at chapter 32, verse 27. Well, we'll pick up at 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose and Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, that is the Levitical priesthood, each one at the cost of his own son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And then verse 35, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So there's consequences of their sin. Now it's, it's measured. He didn't wipe everybody out. But as a, as a penalty for their sin, keep in mind, God's just. 
He was just in punishing them because of their sin. They broke the covenant. They broke the commandment. And as a result, a plague broke out, and then 3,000 of them were put to death. So we see the, the results of idolatry. Personal corruption, temporary pleasure followed by bitterness, God's wrath and death. Finally, and with this we'll conclude, the rescue from idolatry. Here we get a, in this chapter, we get a pointer to Jesus. Notice verse 11. This is the first pointer. After God says that he's going to consume the people of Israel in his wrath, and he even says to Moses, I'm going to start fresh with you. I mean, imagine how attractive that would be to Moses in the flesh. First of all, he doesn't have to deal with them anymore. They've been nothing but a rock in his shoe the whole time. Remember? Chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, 18... They're not a pleasurable group to lead. <laughs> and, and, and God says to Moses, listen, I'll wipe them out. We'll start fresh with you. And you're going to get to be the cornerstone of this new people. It will be the people of Moses. Not the people of Abraham, but the people of Moses. It's pretty attractive. But what does Moses say? Moses implored the Lord his God, verse 11, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Stop there. Where has Moses been? He's been in the presence of God. And when you're in the presence of God, guess what happens? Your heart becomes like God's heart. And his heart is warmed to the people of Israel. His heart has been changed. His, as he's been beholding the glory of God, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, he's being transformed into the same image. And therefore, he has a heart for the people of Israel. He has a heart for God's glory. He has a heart for all the right things. God is testing Moses here. He's testing Moses to see what Moses is going to do. Just like he did with Abraham in Genesis 22 with, this, with Isaac. Do you think God was set on killing Isaac? Of course not. But he was testing to see if Abraham would trust him. And this same thing here is a test for Moses. And Moses says, listen, you brought these people out. Verse 12, why, what would the Egyptians say? He says, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them on the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? See, what, the Egyptians are going to laugh you to scorn. If you kill them and they see all these hundreds of thousands of Israelites dead at the foot of Mount Sinai, they're going to say, woo, that's, that's some God. This God brings people out of slavery and kills them in the desert. What kind of God is that? He's terrible. Do you want that reputation, God? You want that reputation? You want that on your resume? He's appealing to God's name and it's God's glory. And brothers and sisters, good stuff happens when we do that. When we start caring about God's name, when we start caring about God's honor, when we start caring about God's glory, and we start bringing it into the picture and giving him reasons to do things for his namesake, God's heart gets moved. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I'm going to multiply your... In other words, God, if you kill them, you're a liar. You're breaking covenant just like them. You're guilty of the same things. They're down there at the base of the mountain breaking covenant. You're up here at the top of it breaking covenant. Because you told Abraham you would deliver them. Remember what you said to Abraham? You didn't take their behavior into consideration. You said you're going to multiply them. You said you're going to make them as the stars of heaven. What did God do? Verse 14. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken 
of bringing on his people. Look at verse 30 of the same chapter. The next day Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've get, I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. What does Moses do? He goes up to God and he says, God, if you're going to kill them, kill me. Keep them. Brothers and sisters, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is what we learn. The way we get rescued from idolatry is by relying on a mediator. The only reason Israel's spared here is because they had a Savior who was willing to step and stand in the gap for them and be willing to absorb their punishment. And brothers and sisters, we got the same thing. We have a greater Moses who came to God and said, listen, I know these people are guilty of idolatry. I know they are guilty of gross, flagrant sin. But God, your honor, your honor. And the son says to the father, did I not come and live a perfect life? Was my, was my obedience not good enough? Was my death not worth it? And as our advocate with the father, he stands, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he intercedes, ever lives to make intercession for us, pleading on our behalf, not to an angry father, but to a just father. And he says, Lord, you are just to forgive them because I absorb their sin. You are just to reward them with righteousness because I earned it. And if you, if, if, if it would be your good pleasure, as Jesus said in eternity, I would be glad to go be blotted out of the book for their sake. I would be glad to go down to earth, enter into their humanity, take upon myself their sin, and have your wrath fall on me if they would be saved. That's Jesus. That's a Jesus. He's our greater Moses. So the first thing we do is we see the beauty of Christ presented here in Moses being a mediator. Secondly, we got to get on the Lord's side. Got to get on the Lord's side. Look at Exodus 25 and 26. When Moses comes down at the base of the mountain and he, and he sees the people breaking loose, what does he say? Who's on the Lord's side? Who's on the Lord's side? And brothers and sisters, that's the way we got to respond. We're on the Lord's side. We get on the Lord's side, which means we repent of our sin. We're not just believing in the Savior, but we're turning away from those things that displease him. And we're saying, we want to be on your team. We want to follow you. Yes, we're going to sin. Yes, we're going to be imperfect. But we're not resolved to live in sin. We're going to fight it. With your help, we're going to fight it, and we're on your side. That's what it means to get baptized. When we get baptized, we're saying, Lord, I'm on your side. I'm on your side. And I'm with you. And so we have to get on the Lord's side. And then finally, we flee from idolatry. We flee from idolatry. In fact, this is the main lesson that 1 Corinthians 10 says that we need to take away from this passage. Listen to what Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians. And with this, I'll close. Now, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instructions on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let everyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. Isn't that a great promise? God's faithful. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you're able. He's going to provide a way of escape for you. Therefore, he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the time in your word this morning, which helps us, ministers medicinally to our souls, your word as it comes to us and reminds us of both our sin and your grace. Thank you for providing a mediator for us who is greater than Moses. Moses couldn't be blotted out of the book. He was sinful like they were. But nevertheless, we have Jesus who was separate from sinners and without sin and righteous who could bear our sin in his body on the tree and bring us to God. And we are so thankful. Lord Jesus, if there's anyone here, would you draw them who is outside of your family, who is still flirting with sin or in idolatry or that you would draw them that, that before the bitterness comes, that before the day of wrath comes, that